Hello, people. Let's pray and jump into this word. Well, Father, we remember that the Lord Jesus repeated those words that man does not live on bread alone, but on every single word that comes from you. And so as we come to your word before us now, preserved for us now, please feed us. Please give us all that we need. We have many wants, but please give us all that we need. And we recognise that that is you and faith in you and a growing faith in you. So please, would you give us a faith that more and more reflects that of the Lord Jesus, our brother, who even in deep darkness trusted in you. Please make us more like him. Please keep us running the race towards him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, imagine a friend comes to you. They know you're a Christian and they ask you this question. Hey, does following Jesus make your life better or worse? What do you say? Is the Christian life going to make me happier or sadder? Is it going to make things easier or harder? What's the answer? Yes. That's right. After all, the Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls as you are reconnected to the God for whom you were made, the best life. And then just five chapters on from saying these words, Jesus says, Anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, pick up their cross, a death symbol, and come after me. Well, which is it, Jesus? Is following you the life of blessing or of hardship? And Jesus says, yes. And it is a fundamental truth and tension that we must embrace if we're going to follow the real Jesus. That coming to him is the best life. And coming to him will mean that your life will be harder than it otherwise would be. There's hardship that comes by choice in all sorts of ways. As we prayed about it, it can come from a persecution. Now, in our little moment of history, we haven't experienced what many have down through the ages, many do around the world. But it is a hard thing to be a Christian in the workplace, isn't it? In the lunchroom, on the job site. It can be a hard thing for us to be Christians in our families, loved ones who actually make it really hard for us, who are down on us, who hate the fact that we follow Jesus, friendships that have suffered. Choosing to follow Jesus is choosing to bring limitations into your life. You may not be able to get ahead in your career because you cannot, will not cut corners that would sin against Jesus. Or maybe there's whole professions that you can't go into or need to get out of because you would be sinning against conscience. Marriage. The pool of spouses gets really, really small, doesn't it? If you were to listen to Jesus say, marry someone who loves me. There's limitations. There's intellectual angst that some of us particularly feel as we follow Jesus. Maybe hardship has come upon ourselves or loved ones and it's just... It's just disconnected what we thought about God and life and how it would be. It's disillusioning. Or maybe there's parts of the Bible that we are, if we're honest, embarrassed about. We believe that they're true, but we just kind of go, oh. There's an angst as we hold to these things. And then there's just the spiritual angst. As we see people through God's eyes and grieve at their lostness. 
There's the wrestle that every single one of us has against ourselves, against our sinful natures. Wouldn't life be easier if we were able to just live life following our hearts wherever they wanted to go? Just be authentic me, not have to justify myself to anyone. Choosing to follow Jesus is choosing the best life, but it also is choosing hardship, which over time can become exhausting, can cause us to grow weary, to possibly lose heart and question the whole thing. I wonder if that's you this morning. I know it is for some of you. Hardship is common to everyone, but there's a particular hardship that comes with following Jesus. And if it's not yours this morning, no doubt one day it will be. As it was for the original group of people to whom this book was written, this letter was written, which we call Hebrews. This was a bunch of people who had come out of a Jewish background and embraced Jesus as their Messiah, the true Messiah. And we're told that they did that, they they received the light. Their lives changed. Uh, They were blown away in coming to the good life. Um, But things changed very quickly for them. Hardship came upon them. Uh, They were insulted publicly. They chose to stand side by side with those who went to prison for their faith. They had their property, their possessions taken away from them. But we're told they endured all of this even joyfully because they had come to the best life in Jesus. But months turn into years, possibly a decade on. The suffering hadn't let up. Maybe it was getting worse. It was exhausting. And they were facing the very real choice of ditching Jesus and making their lives easier. Enter the pastor, the writer of this letter to this group of people. It's his big reason for writing. And his big message Do not lose heart. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Do not shrink back from Jesus. It's the drumbeat that he just keeps beating. Don't give up. Don't give up. But he doesn't just keep kind of shouting, don't give up. He gives reasons and helps to not give up. Uh, He's not like one of the dads in the soccer team that my uh, son was in this year who was standing on the sideline. He'd be getting frustrated with how they're playing. And he'd just yell, kick the ball, kick the ball. Kick the ball! <laughs> As though that was going to be a winning insight for a soccer team, right? This, this pastor does say, keep going, keep going, keep going. But he gives reasons and helps to actually do that. We've been working through some of them the last few weeks. Chapter 11, do you remember? He gives a whole bunch of people who did make it to the end by faith. The same faith, he says, that you have. Last week, chapter 12, helpfully we looked at Jesus, the supreme example of faith who went through the cross to the joy on the other side. And so we are to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and our brother. This morning, as we come to the passage, he gives the help of actually uncovering the purpose in their pain. There is a design to their hardship and a good one. And actually realising that is a great help in enduring it. And so one of the ways of getting to that purpose is to consider what is the source of these people's pain. Clearly it's there, but what is it? Well, it's twofold. Number one, make sure you've got your Bible there, chapter 12, verse 4, it's sin. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
I take it that he's not using sin here as he did back in verse 1 of chapter 12, where there it was the personal sin of these people, you know, sin against God in all sorts of ways that needed to be thrown off in order to keep running the race. I think here he rather switches from that and uses sin to personify the opposition that they are facing because they follow Jesus. The reason I think that's the case is it follows straight on from verse 3. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow, grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, that is hardship that's coming your way from sinners as you follow Jesus, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What he's saying here is things are bad for you, sure, they really are they could be worse. You, you haven't suffered the ultimate penalty of becoming a martyr, as did a whole bunch of people in chapter 11. You know, it's verse 36, some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two, killed by the sword, and so on. Then there's Jesus, chapter 12, the ultimate martyr who shed his blood. Guys, it's bad, but it's not that bad yet. Which is helpful for us in understanding this. This hardship is not a direct result of their sin against God, but rather because of their allegiance to God. But it's taking its toll. They're growing weary. They're tempted to lose heart, which is natural. Is that you? It's natural. The Bible recognises it. So what help does the pastor give? Well, it's a gentle and kind rebuke and reminder. He actually points out there's another source to their hardship, that of divine discipline. Divine discipline. Look at it, verse 5, you've got to see it to believe it. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? that addresses you as a father addresses his son, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. God is doing something among this pain. I have four kids, uh, they're growing up now, but there have been countless number of times where there's been pain coming into their lives and I've observed it at a distance. You know, we're at the park and they're all everywhere and I can't be close to everyone and probably one of the boys is doing what I told him not to do. He's in his socks and he's running up the slide, not going down the slide. And of course he runs up the slide, slaps his face on the slide, tears. You know, I'll, I'll see it, I'll run in, I'll comfort I'll draw the connection to, say, Daddy told you not to do that, so the unhappy ending, do the, do the discipline thing, the instruction thing. But notice that's not the picture of God's discipline of his children here. It's not as if he sees his children kind of get themselves into trouble or, or Satan comes along and brings hardship on them and so he steps in to comfort, to bring instruction and to clean things up. Rather, God brings hardship into his children's lives. That is the clear teaching of verse 5, 6, 7, this passage. 
What is the source of their hardship? Is it the opposition from sinners that's coming in all kinds of forms? Or is it their Heavenly Father? Yes. Yes. Now, this needs some care and qualification. As we always talk about God bringing evil into his children's lives. Care and qualification. Um, can anyone remember what Newton's third law is? For any science teachers or science nerds here, you'll all know it, you just don't know it's Newton's third law. It's for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And that rings true of so much in life, isn't it? We can kind of see something happen and a consequence over there. Sometimes it's complex, but you can still draw the line. You know, why is petrol, why is diesel so expensive right now? Well, there's this war in Russia. Action, reaction. I think because this is such a truism of life and because of our nature, we so quickly apply Newton's third law to any hardship in our relationship with God. God must be punishing me for my sin against him. This hardship is God's reaction to my sinful action. Is that the case? Maybe. Maybe. The Bible, even the New Testament, has examples where God brings divine judgment into his forgiven people's lives as a direct result of their sin. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, drop dead. There are some who are sick, some who even die. 1 Corinthians 11 in Corinth because of their direct sin. It's possible, but it's probably not. Because the burden of the Bible's teaching on suffering causes us to be very cautious between applying Newton's third law of a direct line between my sin and God's punishment. God brings pain into his people's lives, not necessarily in the form of judgment and punishment, but as discipline for growth. Because, of course, discipline involves more than just correction. It involves correction, but instruction and training and growth, it's doing something. But make no mistake, God brings it. Now, this has been familiar territory for us this year, hasn't it? In the providence of God, as we just work through the Bible, 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, light momentary troubles that are achieving for us an eternal glory. Then we spent what felt like forever in the book of Job, <laughs> yeah, uh, where we learned some profound lessons that the hardship God brought into Job's life was not a direct result of his sin. God was boasting about Job and yet brought such hardship. And here we are again. It's familiar territory for us. And as we were looking at through this, I think it was through the book of Job, one of you came up to me and said, you know, I, I just can't accept it. I'm sorry, I just I cannot believe that God would bring hardship, pain, even in the form of evil, into his children's life. No, sorry. Now, I love that we can be honest with each other together. Yeah, that it's not some plastic... Christian face, we're not just doing this kind of tick box theology, we can wrestle together. Now, if that is you, if you kind of got that thinking, it's wrong, it is wrong, it's clearly here, but there's some good instinct maybe in that. That is, 
you know that God is good and altogether good. The Bible says as much, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. God will not and cannot act evilly. It's a childish thought to think that God can do whatever he wants. He's so big and so powerful, God can do anything he wants. No, he can't. God cannot act inconsistently with who he is, his character, his nature, which is perfectly pure. God cannot, will not act evilly. And yet, he brings evil, very real evil, into the lives of those he loves without being tainted by evil. How can God do that? How can that work? Well, the lesson we've been learning all year is because he's God, we're not. Because he is creator, not a man, not a creature. And what is impossible for us is not impossible for God. There's two classic examples, of course, in Scripture which are familiar for many of us, but not all of us. This is a new journey for a bunch of us and we rejoice that that's you. But chase it up later, Genesis chapter 50, a man named Joseph who was treated so wickedly by his brothers, those who ought to have loved him, treated him wickedly. Great suffering, long suffering. And then when Joseph has the opportunity to face his brothers and speak to them, what does he say? You, brothers, intended to harm me. It was wicked, it was evil, you were culpable. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. One action, two agents, two different intent. The wicked actions of the brothers, the intent of God, though God doesn't partake in the evil. Of course, there's the supreme example of the Lord Jesus and his cross. Where Peter, after Jesus' death and resurrection, is addressing the Jewish crowds in Jerusalem in uh, Acts chapter 2. And he says these very blunt words. This is the man who was hiding in his lounge room the week before. Scared. Out there says this to the whole crowd. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus, this man, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, the Roman officials, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What could make a scaredy cat a week before stand up and say this? Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it God? Yes. Now we've got to take care here by what we mean by responsible. The actions of the Jews, of the Romans, were culpable. They really were wicked. Not so God. He stands behind evil in a different way to how he stands behind good, which flows from who he is. Make no mistake, though, that he stands behind the evil. How can that be of any comfort? This is your God who brings hardship into your life. How can that be of any comfort? Well, because God is a loving, heavenly Father to be trusted because all that he brings into his children's life, what is pleasant, what is painful, has the goal of love. 
stems from a heart of love. Verse 6, have a look at it. Hebrews chapter 12. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. All the more profound because we're not natural children, we're adopted children. He's chosen to bring us into his family. This is a profound insight about discipline, actually, and that is it is not in opposition to love. Discipline is actually an application of love. Verse 7 is where he now rolls into a human analogy of the parent-child relationship. And I just want to own and acknowledge that this can be a very painful one for some of us if your childhood, your experience of your father has been a horrible one, if that's the case. It is not what the Bible expects. And can I just encourage you to work hard at thinking about this relationship for what you longed for. You didn't have it, but what you longed for. It is a good ideal, and you know that because it was missing. And most of all, to put your eyes on your heavenly Father. But he gives this human analogy, verse 7, for what children are not disciplined by their father? Verse 8, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And this is where I think the analogy can start to break down for us. Because I reckon there are some of you hearing that, which children are not disciplined by their fathers, and some of you going, I can think of a few. (laughs) And I reckon it's you oldies, yeah, who are thinking that. I can can point out a few around here. Just stick your head in here at quarter past 12. (laughs) Now, I think it is the case, I think it is true, that there has been a more modern shift in parenting approaches, moods and methods and gurus and books and so on, which hold out negotiation, understanding, permissiveness as the ways of parenting, rather than command, consequences, correction. I do think it's true that you can track through the generations an increasing squeamishness in the parent about bringing any pain into their kid's life. And I think you will see a bunch of homes that are ruled by the three-year-old, not the parent. Now, that's not necessarily because you're having a shocker at parenting. If you've got a three-year-old, it's just hard, full stop, right? But clearly that approach to parenting, that, that absence of any discipline that involves pain, is at odds with the Bible's view of the parent-child relationship. But I suspect that this more modern, permissive approach is in part a reaction, an equal and opposite reaction to a form of discipline that was so harsh, that was so cruel, that was so oppressive, that sure, it might lead to obedience in the child, but it would squash them. It would crush them. And as the child has grown, there is anything but respect in that child for their parents. See, that is one of the two outcomes that this loving discipline will produce. Look at it, verse 9. We've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits? See, he's 
a controlling feature about the discipline, it generates respect in the child who is being disciplined. Now, not necessarily in the moment, in fact, never in the moment. Never have my kids come out from their room having had some time out as discipline going, thanks, Dad. That was great. Now, tough but fair. No pain, no gain. Respect, you know? Never. But in time, I trust, as imperfect as my fathering has been, there will be respect. As there is for my experience with my father, which was an interesting moment because he was at 8.30, so we kind of had this public (laughs) chat about my childhood. Uh, My dad was also my primary school teacher. And so it came with some pros and cons, yeah? Like, uh, always got great hope with the homework. I always got a lift to school. That was great. Cons, never being able to hide from my parents the trouble that I got into from my teacher (laughs) at school. I got a double dose of discipline from my father. I remember thinking, this sucks. This is horrible. I'm under Mr. Reynolds' blackboard again. But I can honestly say, and I was able to say this publicly, as imperfect as he would own that it was, I deeply respect the discipline that my father gave me. Imperfect as it was, imperfect as mine is, there is the assumption that there is discipline that will lead to respect. The second thing that discipline, God-like discipline produces is holiness, particularly here in the hands of God, verse 10. They, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Right there is just an acknowledgement that it's not perfect. Even the best of dads, the ones that we respect, was not perfect. But, the contrast, God disciplines us for our good, always good, in order that we may share in his holiness. This is another key insight into discipline. Discipline isn't done to the child, it's done for the child. It has a goal of growth here in God's hands to share in his holiness. I take that means now on the race as we run towards heaven, it is increasingly becoming more and more like our God in character. It's a great joy like father, like son, to grow more like him, like daughter. But ultimately... On that day, when we share in all the fullness of eternal life, to be with him, to to live in the life of God with him. I take it that's the same point of verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Righteousness and peace that is now in bit by bit by bit increasing measure, but fully and finally, as we... Meet Jesus. Which means this, God's discipline of us plays a long game. It has a long view. So too in the home. Now we might ask at this point, oh, why God, why did your design have to be like this? All powerful, all knowing. Couldn't you have designed it so that we could get to sharing your holiness apart from the path of pain? Legit question. One that we will have an eternity when we are with him to understand more fully. But for now, what we can know for sure is that as God has designed this path, he is not stated distant from it. 
that in his son he has entered into this painful design that there is glory on the other side through the path of suffering. Come back to chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who became a child, who became a man. Chapter 5, verse 8. Son, though he was God's perfect son, he, Jesus, learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, notice that, complete, it's on the other side of suffering, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. His work on the cross, in the place of sinners, that if you would look to him, trust in him, you would know eternal salvation came by the way of suffering. Regardless of your childhood experience, your relationship with your father, you can know that God is your good heavenly father in the gospel. He has given up his son who has willingly gone through the path of pain for our glorious end. And so as this good, loving Father brings it into our life, as he sees fit, remember, long view, glorious end. Now as I head towards finishing up, a brief word on parenting. Of course, the passage raises that for us. I don't think it's the big point. We'll come to the big point in a moment. But on parenting. Uh, Parents who are there, particularly at that younger end, or if you are heading there, Do not buy into the most popular notion around us that your children, by nature, are sweet, innocent little darlings. (laughs) This is wrestle our world are doing because they they believe that, but then they have the home experience. But I believe that they're good, but then I... Of course, experience ought to tell us, but the Word of God tells us, if we were naturally good, sure, all our kids need is food and water and support and praise. and They'll spread their wings and soar, spread their kindness and love everywhere. Listen to the words of God in Proverbs 19, verse 18. Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Now, lots that could be said here that I won't. But discipline is more than correction. It includes training, instruction, knowledge and so on. But it is not less than correction. And it's going to include pain. That's the point of verse 11. Discipline, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Now, your kids won't thank you now. And that's a problem for you if your goal is to actually be your kid's bestie. You know, like, we're going to be best friends. God has given that child you as their parent, not as their bestie, which comes with the responsibility to raise and instruct little sinners, which means correction, which includes discipline. All in the context of a relationship with so much praise and encouragement and kindness and gentleness and grace and mercy, it's a must. So much of our pain with the correction is because all of that was absent. And the punishment was actually just a childish outburst of the parent done to the child, not for the child. But the answer isn't to just equal and opposite reaction, throw it all out. Don't be a willing party to your kid's death. 
Again, parenting is complex. It is not a neat science that you can just bring kind of the latest guru book and it'll all be okay. Be wary of that. But be wary of the approach that finds no place for bringing pain into your kid's life with love and grace and praise and so on. One day, God willing, they will respect you. Play the long view for the glorious end. Men, let me say a word to women because notice this passage has a particular word for men. Notice it's the father here who is to take responsibility for the discipline of the children. Why is that? It is not because the mother is incompetent and incapable. Not at all. The same word for discipline, instruction, teaching, so on, is often paralleled in the Proverbs between the father and the mother. Listen to the teaching of your father, honour the instruction of your mother. But there is a shape, a God-given shape to the relationships in our home. Which means, men, dads, you will stand before God and give an account for your parenting in a way that is different to your wife. This is a call meant to man up, to dad up, to fight our natural tendency inherited from our first father, Adam, to abdicate. Be present. Stay present. Repent. Come back and be present. Be engaged with the raising of your kids. This isn't to say that mothers shouldn't discipline. Not at all. Of course. But it is a big word to us men, dads, and a high calling that it's not going to be perfect, but it ought to be something of a reflection of our Heavenly Father's discipline of us. So that our kids might one day say, they didn't get it perfect, but I respect that. How much more can I trust God to be a good father? Single mums, we love you and have such great admiration for you. And trust that God might give his spirit to you in double measure, if I could put it like that, as you have a two-for-one deal. Make the most of belonging to this family that God has put you in. Wasn't it so good to see that video for so many reasons, but to see those kids with, with a whole bunch of parents, young men and women, middle-aged seniors, lean into your church family. And all parents... Last little thing, much more that could be said, but model humility. It's not a question of will you get discipline wrong at times, but how often. Be quick to be humble to seek your kids' forgiveness. Mate, sweetheart, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? That was wrong. Daddy should not have. I've asked God, my father, to forgive me. If nothing else, make it clear that, to your kids that you, mummy, daddy, needs a saviour. But again, the, the answer isn't because we'll get it wrong to not do it at all. Don't be a willing party to their death. Be humble. Make sure they know that you're a sinner needing grace. Finally, let me get to the big point here. The big point of the passage is whatever hardship is coming your way, particularly as it connects to you following Jesus, don't lose heart. There is a design to your pain in the good hands of a loving Heavenly Father. And so the big application, verse 7, endure hardship. 
wasn't Job a gift to us? Endurance doesn't mean kind of happy faces all the time. Wasn't the gift of lament a beautiful one? Oh, God, I hate this. That's okay. Lament. Asking him to take it away. That's okay. As Paul asked, as Jesus asked, is there another way apart from the cup? But whilst it remains, remember, God is not punishing you because of your specific sin. Though it's always an opportunity to repent, to reflect, he is treating you as a beloved child. But God, I don't understand why it would be this way. I can't even remember my kids' birthdays. I forget my four-digit pin code. And I think that I ought to be able to complain to say, God, you stuffed it, you've got it wrong, there would have been a better way. Humility. Good, loving Father. Endure. But lastly, you're not enduring on your own. Look at verse 12, a clear application here. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Now on the surface, that can sound like a call to the person who is wobbling, who is losing heart. Hey, strengthen yourself. Man up, woman up, keep going. But actually in the original, it's, it's clear that it's addressed to the corporate community. There's no you're in it. And chase up Isaiah 35 later if you want. It reads rather, therefore, strengthen feeble arms. Strengthen weak knees. And so if you are going okay at the moment, praise God, be mindful that there are those around you who are not. And notice whose responsibility is it to strengthen their knees, their arms? Not just your pastors. You. Us. Together. In so many ways, a word. As someone who is wobbling, it can be so hard to preach to yourself. This is true, keep going. It's so hard to believe yourself, but when a brother or sister looks you in the eye and says, hey, I know it's hard, but the gospel is true. The tomb is empty. God's promises are firm. Keep going. Oh, that can strengthen arms and weak knees. As you continue to not give up meeting together, to gathering, remember a couple of weeks ago, even in, God willing, a growing gathering, more and more people, there's no way that you can know everyone's name. We're long beyond that. But you can encourage people that you don't even know their names by being here, by coming. As you say to me, Jesus is worth it. And I'm going to come and I'm going to gather and I'm going to give expression to him, his worthiness. I'm going to keep running. You strengthen my weak arms and knees. Don't give up meeting together. Stop or don't drift into consumption. What's church got for me today? What's church doing for my kids? What's you, us, are the ones who can actually enable the lame to make it along the path. Do you see that? Are you feeling weak? Are you losing heart? Do you feel lame? There's hope for you. God among his people. Let me finish just by doing something to illustrate this. Uh, I want you to put your hand up, keep it up, if you've been following Jesus for 30 years or more. Put your hand up, put it up high. 30 years, three decades. 50 years. Keep your hand up if it's been 50 years. Keep your hand up if it's been 70 years. Now, Mavis is going, can I put my arm down? I've got arthritis in my shoulder. <laughs> Friends, be encouraged. With all of these people, no doubt 
you could scratch the surface and there are a whole bunch of stories of joys and sorrows, particularly as it relates to following Jesus. Here they are. Let them strengthen your weak arms and knees. Keep running the race. Don't lose heart. There is purpose in the pain. It will not be wasted. Let's pray. Well, Father, I want to pray particularly for those among us this morning who are on the edge of losing heart. Yes, our struggle against sin, sinful opposition has not led to our shedding of blood yet, but it still feels too much. Help. Might your word, might your spirit among your people hold on to them, us, for those who are travelling okay for now, prepare us for hardship, lift our gaze to the community that you've put us among, use us please to love and serve, enduring this pain, helping one another as we fear your name. And Father, grow this family we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.